0: Morning during the Omer now if you were to ask the average person I understand that Jews don't have weddings during this period um and that um and that they avoid doing uh, music whatever it might be why do you behave that way what would your answer be somebody comes up to you and says why is it that you guys don't have weddings and and have these other practices during this period how come some of you guys look kind of scruffy right now um crusades what? The Crusades? The Crusades. How many people would actually give that answer? Probably the right
1: one. Right? By, the know. The way, By the way, <laughs> I'm going
0: I'm to challenge you on that because then Sfardim should have no mourning whatsoever. <sighs> and, they, and they should be having weddings and parties and everything else right now. Does it relate to.
1: The Talmud of Ravi Kiva died
0: of Good. That's the stock answer. Dovy, you're already out of the game. But that's the stock answer. And let's take a look at it. Now, we're going to normally we do things top down. We always start from the earliest sources and move ahead. And we're going to do that for the most part, but we're going to start today with a little bit of a later source, early medieval source. uh, That's going to spring us back to the original source. I'll, I'll, I'll show you what I mean. The practice of abstention. I'm not going to call it mourning because I don't know what it is, but I know that there's an abstention from weddings. that was practiced at some point in history in some communities, from sometime around Pesach till sometime around Shavuot. I'm being deliberately vague about it for reasons that will become apparent pretty soon. This practice does not show up in any form that we have, any written form that we have, until the 10th century. And what you're looking at in the fourth <laughs> one is a, um, a quote, a piece from uh, the Sharei Simcha, of uh, of Rabbi Yitzhak Ibn Gayat, a 10th century uh, Spanish chacham who was the very very beginning sort of the of, uh, Spanish scholarship, <coughs> and Maharitz Gayat in his uh, in his book mentions this custom, but he actually mentions it from the sort of opposite direction you would expect. You would expect that he's coming to tell you, you know, what we really shouldn't have weddings now. You'll see that it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Here, take a look. Israel? He makes two statements here that are not so, not so clear, as we'll see, uh, although he makes them clearly. It is a custom throughout Israel, meaning all Jewish people, to not have weddings between Pesach and Shavuot. As we will see, it is not a custom throughout all of Israel, and the time period is also not throughout all of Israel. We'll see that later on. And then he says, isur." he says, the reason is because of mourning and not because of a prohibition. Now, what does he mean by that? So he's clearly commenting on someone else's observation or someone else's suggestion that there's a prohibition to get married. He says, no, no, it's not a prohibition. It's mourning. Which means that whoever else made that suggestion wasn't connecting it with any sort of mourning practice, but was saying there's some sort of a halachic prohibition against having weddings now. It says not the case. Shekacham ruach and then he quotes the story, and we're going to look at the story next. Uh, and so we, I'll just quickly mention it: the story of the death of Rabbi Akiva's students. Um, and then he says, "Umeotas um, shaa." From that point on. Now, by the way, when did Rabbi Akiva's students live? and more importantly, when did they die, in the early part of the 2nd century. This is, we're hearing about it for the first time in the 10th century. And he says, um, sha'a From that moment on, alehen, The custom was to mourn for these students. Shaloli halalu, and how do we mourn? By not having weddings. Now, there's a whole lot of strange things in that statement. But the most obvious strange thing is, well, if from the second century till now, the 10th century, there has been a universal Jewish custom to not have weddings now and to mourn for these students, how come nobody ever said anything about it? How come it doesn't show up in the Gemara? How come it doesn't show up in the works of the early Goh'onim? Nobody says anything. So that's, the silence is kind of deafening. But there are other problems here, which is, we're going to talk about when we look at the story itself. But nisuin says well, it's only actually the marriage that's the problem because that's when <coughs> the happiness is. Ubi when you come into the chuppah, aval lares lekadesh lo just kiddushin that's fine. And nisuin nami even marriage itself kafatz Somebody goes ahead and has a wedding now. Nobody, there's no consequences. There's no punishment, right? he says what should I when should I have my wedding we tell them don't do it now. Israel so you don't go against the common mitig is that this is how the gonim, and by the way as I mentioned as I have in the in the header here a parallel comment almost the same shows up in Shubota gonim also from the 10th century so again it's um it is from that period so the question is he makes a statement which you will see the evidence is not a valid statement, meaning it's not true that it is a custom throughout all of Israel, and it's not true that it is from Pesach to Shavuot everywhere. But the biggest problem is to say that this is a, a custom of mourning that goes back to the times of Rabbi Akiva students. So let's start with actually seeing the story of Rabbi Akiva students that we're talking about. Shall we start? Let's take a look at one version of the story of Rebbe Akiva's students. And time permitting today, and if not the next week, we're gonna see three other versions of that story. Okay, Sam. Yeah, you know, first of all,
1: we've had all kinds of terrible things happen, crusades and other things. Yeah,
0: yeah, agree, agree. I know, wait, wait a second.
1: And we like to push it on to B'Av. Right. The question is, why didn't we push it on to B'Av? Agreed. Especially Agreed. this is a time when we're anticipating receiving the Torah. It should be a time, there's even more reason not to do it.
0: Now. Okay, fine. I agreed. This this is a problematic statement associating it with this. And we'll get to there. It's going to take us a while to get to where this is. And I'm not promising you a panacea. I'm not going to say at the end. I'm going to come up with some magical uh, answer to this. But I want to point out the problems. And you're absolutely right, Sam, that other events that have happened through history, either either we mourn for them on the spot. And then after a while, we sort of forget about them because other things come along. Or we collapse them into Tisha B'av. You're absolutely right. Right? Okay. So let's now see the story of B'Aqiva students and keep that in the background. Your questions are good questions. The whole discussion in the Talmud starts in Masachet Yivamot. You wonder what, what is it doing in Masachet Yivamot. So we have to go through a little bit of a twisty piece. Masachat Yivamot is about Yibum, and Yibum is driven by one consideration, and that consideration is having children. A man died, never had children, who outlived him, and his name is going to be lost, and therefore, if he was married, and one of his brothers, if he has a brother, all sorts of conditions, who that brother is, who the wife is, etc., he should marry the wife and have a kid, and that kid will carry on the name. Very good. So in the context of Yivamot, the mitzvah of Puravu is examined. And we have the following statement about Puravu at the end of the sixth chapter of Yivamot. And you have it here with English. L'oi batel adami Person should not ignore or neglect the mitzvah of Ella uruviah. Meaning if you already had kids, you don't have to have more kids. And if you already had kids and you're no longer married, you don't have to get married again. Right. But as long as you already did your mitzvah, what's the mitzvah? So every mitzvah has its parameters. What's the parameter of Alula? How, uh, what's the parameter of Hadassim? What's the parameter of Puravu? The parameter is two sons. Bethella say no, a boy and a girl, and he quotes a pasuk. I'm not concerned with what this is about, because this is just a springboard. But notice that Bet Hillel, Shammai will be very happy if you have two boys and a girl. Then everybody's covered, right? But that's it, which means, by the way, according to the rule in this Mishnah, and I'm going to make it now happy for everybody, you have two boys, you have a girl, you can now take a break. You can, you don't have to remarry if you're not married, you don't have to have more kids than your family, it doesn't matter, you're done. Okay. The Gemara then comments on that and says that this Mishnah does not accord with the opinion of Rabbi Yehoshua, which by the way is pretty interesting because Rabbi Yehoshua <laughs> was a student of Beit So it means one of two things. It either means that we're actually going to expand things a little bit, which is probably what's happening, or it could mean that there was a Tana who had a version of Beit Hila, Beit like and Rabbi Yehoshua being a student of Beit says, no, it's not so. That's not what they agreed on. They didn't agree on that. All right. <clears> either <throat> way, what does Rabbi Yehoshua say? Nasar adam isha 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 beziknuto. Right. So, if a man was married when he was young, he should marry again when he's older. Now, this does not mean, in for one second, that if a man gets married when he's twenty and he lives for the next twenty years with his wife, and his wife is now nebach forty, so he should divorce her and marry another twenty-year-old. It doesn't mean that. What it means is if a man got married when he was younger and now he finds himself older and without a wife, she died, they got divorced, then he should marry again. In other words, don't live alone. And this is the part that hits home. If he had sons when he was young, he should have more sons when he's older. And he quotes a Pasuk. And this Pasuk is um, in Kohelet. And in Kohelet, chapter 11. The pasuk, which seems to be directed to farmers, says, or metaphorically, In the morning, plant your seeds. Don't stop in the evening. Now, you would think that the reason a farmer would want to be diligent and not lazy and keep planting is because the more you plant, the more it grows. And you would think the same thing with kids. You would think, oh, have more kids because the more kids, the better. Uh, That's not the reason given. You don't know which plants are going to actually work. This one or that one. You plant two rows. Row one might get wiped out. So you have row two to back it up. If they both work out, that's even better. So what does Rabbi Yeshua seem to be saying? If you had kids when you're younger, have more kids when you're older because you don't know what's going to happen to that first group of kids. That means the first group of kids could turn out to be killed. Or the first group of kids could turn out to be sick or that first group of kids could turn out to be bums. All right. And by the way, I, I know and you guys may know some families that have two sort of two generations of kids as kids that the that the couple had when they were first married. And then the first for some reason they took a break of a few years and then they have more kids. And it's almost like two different families. I'm not saying better or worse, but kind of different. yes. Yeah. Did this come up a lot in World War II when people's families? Yeah, were just so I'm going to tell you a story, which is uh, a story about this exact thing, which happened to me, sort of, meaning somebody that I knew. When I first came to Karambyavna, there was a fellow there who was a couple of years older than I was. I think he was 20 at the time, who was like off the charts genius. And everybody was talking about him as the next uh, Rosh Shiva here and there and the other. And, uh, and the guy was truly a, a brainiac. Um, and I found out that his father was also a Rav from Europe. And so I assumed uh, in my very youthful uh, pigeonholing attitude that he probably had uh, 10 brothers and sisters and etc. And I also found out that his father was a Rav in a shul in Yushalayim, right near where my aunt lived. So I would, in, that, in those years, I would go to my aunt for Shabbat sometimes. So I went and then I'd go to his shul for Shalasiddah to meet him. And I saw this very old man. I said, wait a second. This guy's like only a year older than I am. And this guy looks like his grandfather. As so I asked around a little bit, and I found out he didn't have a lot of siblings. He had one sibling. He had one sibling. who was a sister who was 30 years older than he was. So long story short, I found out what happened. This father of his was a Rav in Europe, a big Dayan, big, uh, who had eight kids. And his family was butchered by the Nazis. He marched and he survived, and, he, and his daughter survived. He and his daughter survived, and they came to Israel. So he did what Yeshua said. He got married again, married a younger woman, and had a kid. And that kid was my friend, right? So yes, we see it, and yes, World War II had had some of this, but it's been throughout history. Okay, Rabbi Akiva, who by the way, important to note is Rabbi Yeshua's student, Omer. Lamad Torah be'aldu to, yilmod Torah If you studied Torah when you're young, study again when you're older. That doesn't mean again. It means keep studying. When you're older, you don't turn around and say, "I already did my Torah. And I want to do something else." You, know, you continue studying. Now you'll see the parallel. Hayulo tell dim be'al duto. tell me dim mezik duto. If you had students when you're young, have more students when you're older. So you see the parallel between getting married and studying Torah, and having children and having students. So it's like Rabbi Kiva is sort of taking Rabbi Yeshua's lesson and turning it into. Uh, from biological family to the educational family or the spiritual family. same pasuk, Okay? Now, a question I want to pose to you is, when did Rabbi Akiva say this? At what point in his life did he make his observation? Let's keep going. Amru. So now they tell a story. What's the story? Shnei masar elef zugim talmidim. By the way, this is a strange number. 12,000 pairs of students. So, strange number because the Gemara knows how to multiply and how to say 24,000. Why well, doesn't it say 12,000 pairs of students? Right? So, we'll see. Hayulah the Rabbi Akiva. He had 12,000 pairs of students. And I know the first thing you're going to say is they were harusas. The problem is the harusah system didn't exist yet. So, not so clear. Migvat Gvat Antipras. So, Gvat, which may be near Akko and may be for in the south, Antipras we know is near Netanya um but in that region he had all of these thousands of students they all died at one shot meaning during one period why did they die because they didn't treat each other nicely they were disrespectful to each other now what does that mean does that mean that on the toe tag it said disrespect He checked the charts it said cause of death lack of respect is that what it means so clearly it doesn't mean that. Clearly it means they died of something that you can see as a normal cause of death. They got killed, they had a disease, whatever it is. But underlying this, this clearly unnatural uh, wipeout of so many thousands of students of one man in one short period, there's a spiritual reason behind it. And the spiritual reason is the way they treated each other. Now you've got to really ask, stop and ask a question. These are Talmudim of Rebbe Akiva. All right, so let's say you are a Talmud of Rabbi Akiva, and you're, of course, on the baseball team. All right, Robert, you play third base on the baseball team. Now, Robert, what does it say in your uniform? You play for the Rabbi Akiva uh, school. So what does it say? So in front it says the Akavites. I don't know. On the back it says Smith, 42, because everybody's got to have 42 these days. And on the side, what does it say on the elbow, on the shoulder? There's a logo. You know what it says on the logo? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the rule of the Torah. And a big iron in the middle. And, you know, don't mess with us. Rabbi Akiva is the man who said the standard of Torah is love your neighbor as yourself. And here we have thousands of students from Rabbi Akiva who are all accused of the way they treat each other. Being so bad. That it's so bad that they got killed for. It. Something to think about. Just... Put all these questions in the hopper and we'll get to it. haolam The world was desolate. Now, what world are we talking about? We're not talking about the world of finance or the world of commerce. Talk about the world of Torah. The world of Torah was desolate. Now, this is a little bit of a strange phrase because desolate makes it sound like there is nobody left who's studying Torah. Because Rebbe Kiva's students all died and they were the whole Torah. Kiva is now alone with nobody to teach. The world's desolate. It's not exactly the case, because look at the next line. And then Rabbi Akiva then came to our teachers who were in the south, which means there were people in the south of Israel teaching Torah at the time. The world wasn't so desolate. So the the whole story is not hanging together very well. And who are these great teachers? Ushna and Rabbi Akiva then taught them, but they're already called Raboteinu. They're not, they're not called young students. And who are they? Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Shimon. By the way, that foursome is the quartet of the Mishnah. That foursome, those names show up more than any other names in the Mishnah, more than any other names in the Midrash Tanaim. Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Shimon. They are it. And they are all students of Rabbi Akiva from his latter years. Rabbi Shimon, by the way, is Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Right? Rabbi Elazar ben Shamua. All right, there are different versions of this list, but all versions of this list include those four. Well, and Shamuah is number five on this list. and Then there's a very weird line here, which is, they are the ones who raised up Torah at that moment. I'm not sure exactly what that line means, and we'll, we'll talk about it. But it sounds like the intent is that they kind of brought Torah, they revived Torah, these great students. Okay, that's the bright All right, so let's just talk about this bright for a second, we hear a story that Rabbi Kiva had all of these students, and they all died at one time, because they behaved badly. How are we supposed to react to this event? We read the story, how are we supposed to react to this event? What do you think? Just hit your space bar and you can talk.
1: I think it's a tragedy.
0: They didn't learn Rabbi Q's basic premise. So, how are we supposed to react? That's the question. Sad. What? Sad. Sad. again. You have to be sad. You have to be sad. Why am I sad? What am I sad about?
1: Something like this could happen.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, so Dobie asked an interesting question. It's a technical question here, which we're going to get back to, but not today which is botoperek. What's otoperek as opposed to otasha'a? So a really quick answer is otasha'a would really mean like in one day. Otoperek could mean a few months. The peric was mine, right? And that's the motion in and Pesach and Kufi of Zion, okoperek, But But we might be sad, but what are we sad for in hearing this story? Are we sad for the death of these students? Or are we sad for their behavior that led to their death? I don't know. But you could also tell us
1: we don't, we, also, we don't understand God's justice, especially the two sons of Aaron. These people, they're learning Torah anyway, even if they weren't perfect. They didn't do anything to deserve a death penalty.
0: Okay, but these guys evidently did. For another one of you, we don't understand it. And we've got lots of different ways to look at it, and they could have been the holiest people around. Moshe said to Aaron in one Midrash, I thought you or I would be the Korban. Turns out they're greater than we are. Could be a lot of things. I don't know. Right. It sound, to me it sounds like we should be sad about the fact that there was no Torah in the world until until uh, the others, the rabbis, were taught again. Okay, so that's another thing is that maybe we should we, that we should sad. We, what's Dovi? You got tell me in a second what you mean. Um, it, it, it could be that we we're sad because of the dearth of Torah that happened in those in for however long we don't know how long it was. Was it five minutes? After the last guy was buried, and then Rabbi Akiva found new students, was it a year? Was it? We don't know. In this story, What do, what do you mean? What right?
1: do the, they do that? Deserves a death
0: penalty? I, the law, the Torah, the I don't know. Reality. I'm just reading the story. I don't know. I'm just asking. How are we supposed to react to this story? Well, you the more' is mostly concerned with Rabbi Akiva's reaction to it and how it's a, a key of of of, of this uh, this teaching to to move on and to re- recreate your your Torah family. So okay. So I'm going to now ask you two questions, which are related and I'm going to touch them with what Dovi just said. When did Rabbi Akiva come up with the observation that the pasuk that his teacher used about having kids could be applied to students? Maybe it was now. In other words, maybe his observation was the result of his life, that he had students and he thought, oh, I have all these students, it's great. And then they all died and they turned around and said, you know what, maybe you have to more students. Maybe what my teacher taught about kids, I should apply to students. And now I'm going to add to that. Try out this scenario. Rabbi Akiva has thousands of students, and he's teaching them Niga'im and Ohalot, the details of Tuma Vatara, all the intricate things. And they behave badly. And as a result of them behaving badly, they die. And Rabbi Akiva turns around and says, you know what? I missed the mark. What should I have been teaching them? In other words, maybe the Recha Kamocha Torah is something Rabbi Kiva said now. See, we our problem is we read something something that a great Chacham said, and we assume he came out of the womb saying that. We assume the Rambam came out of the womb with three books under his arms Mishnah Torah, the Parish Vishnayot, and Sefer Mitzvah. You know, and the Moran of him in the back of his head. No, he came out a baby. Maybe Rabbi Akiva came to this observation after this terrible tragedy. So just something to think about. I want to finish the, the, the story itself the way it's presented. Now, we finished the story. We have a, now a separate writer that says, Tana Kula Pesach There's a separate story that says that this terrible event happened between Pesach and Shavuot. And by the way, Pesach and Shavuot, we assume that means in the same year, as opposed to Pesach one year and Shavuot three years later. Okay, fine. So Pesach and Shavuot. So that's a pretty condensed period of time, seven weeks for so many thousands of people to die and young men to die. And then we get a much later tradition in of Bavell, They all died a bad death. By the way, in some of the Kitveiyat, it reads, Meshuna. Mishuna means a very unusual death, unusual in the sense of cruelty. And Mahi, so now we have a later tradition, Amar Nachman They died from diphtheria, which is, which is evidently something where you choke and you can't breathe. It's very, very painful. Okay. I mean, not okay, very sad. But we have lots of questions about this story. One of the questions about this story is 24,000 students. I mean, come on, that sounds a little bit much. And uh, why are they presented as 12,000 pairs? And- Does that have anything to do with- but But the biggest question you want to ask here is, how are we supposed to react to this? So you're telling me that our reaction is during the entire time that they were dying, we should be mourning. And so I'm going to ask you three questions. And with those three questions, we're going to take a pause till next week. Question number one, for whom do we mourn in halacha? For whom do we mourn? The answer is only close relatives. That's it. I don't know who these guys are. Second of all, What's the longest period of mourning that exists in halacha? from the moment of the tragedy until the end of mourning? What's the longest you could ever have?
1: Twelve months.
0: That's it. You can never go more than twelve months. And here we're talking about close to 2,000 years, maybe about 1,900 years from an event. And third question is, what's the period of mourning in halacha? What periods of mourning do we have? We have a day. We have three days, we have seven days, we have 30 days, we have 12 months. We don't have seven weeks. doesn't exist. And we don't ever, in mourning, associate the length of mourning with the length of the tragedy. We don't say, oh, this guy was in critical condition for two weeks and then he died, so I'm going to mourn for two weeks. We don't say this guy was held hostage by, the, the, by Hezbollah for three weeks and he was killed, so we're going to mourn for three weeks our mourning doesn't correlate with the with the pain with the period of tragedy the tragedy is a tragedy and mourning has its own system but the biggest question of course is where is there any mention in this sugya that says and as a result of this event we mourn we desist from weddings we whatever you notice it's not here and by the way what we'll see next week is We're going to see three other versions in rabbinic literature of this story. And in not, I'm telling you right ahead, in not one of them is a mention of any sort of practice that we have as a result of this. Which means we got two things we got to do over the course of next week and maybe the week after. One of them is we got to figure out where mourning during this period comes from. And we have a lot of different sources to discuss. And the second thing we got to do, I'm not sure what order we're going to do it in, we'll see. Is to look at the story and see what is up with the story and where the story came from and how the story developed. Right, so that's what we're going to do over the course of the next two weeks. Okay. Yes, so I have a different. Can I just give you one different take on this? Sure. If Beit Hillel says that Purvu requires a male child and a female child, right? And Rabbi Akiva said this is referring to, to- Torah and, and disciples and students. Sounds to me well, that what Rabbi Akiva is really saying is that we should have both male and female rabbis. Okay, so so this is what happens when you have an agenda. When you have an agenda, <laughs> is you don't read text straight. I know you're kidding. Is that when you have an agenda, you don't read text straight. What did Rabbi Hillel say? I'm going to take you on. What did Rabbi Hillel say? P'ruavu is a boy and a girl. He gets right. it from the pasuk. Beit Shammai says it's two boys. He gets it from his pasuk from Moshe. I think Omar deals with it. Rabbi Yeshua comes along later and says, no, there is no limit. There's no such thing as saying, I have enough kids. Have as many kids as you can, because you don't know what's going to happen to them. Rabbi Akiva then takes that lesson and applies it to students. Have as many students as you can. Doesn't say as many rabbis as you can. One is usually way more than enough.